Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare, which seeks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector in the UK, and to speak to luminaries about how we can truly enable the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahail Mirza, and we are facing an extraordinary time in the labour market, and also a changing nature of the workforce within health and social care. It's vital, therefore, to hear from people who really are at the forefront of the discussions around policy and practice in that area. I can think of few people better qualified to discuss that than my guest, Neil Carberry, the CEO at the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Neil, always a delight to spend time with you. Thank you for giving us your time today. An absolute joy to be with you, Sahil, as always. I don't think I've ever been called a luminary before, but you know, I'm, I'll take it. I think it's utterly apt, if, <laughs> if I may say so. I want to just look at the landscape around the workforce in health and social care. It's an extraordinary time. I think it's 35 years since the VUCA acronym arrived with volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity would describe the place that we are today absolutely aptly. But looking at the health and social care workforce, uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, who was uh, chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee until quite recently, until his elevation to the chancellorship, uh, said that this is the greatest workforce crisis faced by the NHS and social care. What are you seeing on the ground? So we're absolutely seeing a health service that has proved its resilience through the pandemic, but the build-up of uh, stresses on the health and uh, service and the social care sector through the pandemic hasn't been uh, resolved over the last uh, year or so as things have started to normalise. I think the most important trends that I'd identify are we're definitely starting to see that in the wider labour market. The UK has more people who are off work long-term sick and therefore economically inactive than other countries right now. That has to be about NHS backlogs. And part of the challenge, I think, for all of us is to work out how we resolve that. How do we deal with NHS backlogs within a context of uh, fiscal controls and make sure that what we're doing is meeting patient needs in a really good way and the call from the REC is that means we all need to get our shoulder to the wheel whether that's substantive staff it's bank staff or it's staff being supplied through agencies I think that idea that we have a healthcare workforce that can be easily sliced and diced needs to be done away with and actually start to think about a workforce that is one workforce and we actually do some long-term thinking about why people want to work in health. It's one of the challenges that we face right now is we are definitely seeing uh, healthcare staff coming into agency from substantive for things that aren't pay. Uh, and that's because of the, the relative absence of a decent workforce plan for health and social care. Well, I'll be very keen to explore that with you. But I think to step back a little bit, and if you may, uh, I'd be interested for you to shed some light on the work of the REC, and in particular, the recruitment sector, which I think, despite its longevity uh, and scale, which I'm sure you'll shed some light on, remains relatively not well understood. It's absolutely the case that I think recruitment is one of the UK's great undersold success stories, both as a domestic sector and as an export sector. We do work around the world from here in the UK. Recruitment as an industry is worth multiple billions of pounds per, per year, around 40 billion in direct uh, GVA. That uh, scale of uh, contribution to the economy puts recruitment as bigger than accountancy and bigger than law, and we need to view recruitment and staffing as a sector which 
is one of Britain's great professional services sector. It is about added value. It is about helping employers, whether they're companies or indeed hospital trusts, uh, do things more efficiently, more effectively and meet needs that they cannot meet on their own staff. I think particularly with regards to temporary work, where 80% of the income of the sector is about supplying temporary workers into, into situations, whether that's a one-off shift to something more uh, substantial, perhaps in a managed service. The critical thing for the industry is that we should be advisors, we should be partners with clients to make sure that we're helping clients navigate difficult times. Every sector is facing difficult times at the moment, but you've already highlighted on the strain that the health and social care sector is under. Recruiters are critical partners for, for, for the sector. We talk at the REC about our 500 health and social care members as NHS staffing partners because that's what they they strive to be and if we can take the conversation to that level of what is the what are the things that we want agencies focusing on what are the things that we can do to improve the experience for substantive staff and I think agencies actually have some really good advice for trusts on that mm -hmm. and what is the role of bank because we're already seeing that bank uh, staff are subtly different in the, the shifts they're interested in, the reasons why they do things from agency staff. How do we get that balance of bank and agency right? That requires a much more mature, much more strategic discussion than, dare I say, I think we've had in this country over the last five to ten years. No, thank you for that. And it might be interesting now, we've been through an extraordinary period uh, over COVID. We're headed into another extraordinary period through macroeconomic trends, uh, pressures on uh, world uh, economic growth. I think the OECD's uh, pared down its uh, growth projections from 2.8 to 2.2% 2 .2 2023, and the shortages we've already talked about. 40-year highs in inflation. But uh, focusing on your members that work and have worked with the NHS and social care over the COVID period, uh, can you shed some light on what that felt like, uh, the contributions that they were made? Because everyone was asked to really go the extra mile. Well, I think the most important to say about what uh, thing to say about what agencies could do during the pandemic is that they could act quickly. And I remember talking uh, with a group of healthcare uh, healthcare providers about the fact that we were via the agency sector deploying medical staff much more quickly into COVID wards than was possible for. Uh, trust themselves to do because, of course, we had a, a, a more strategic view and it's what we do every day. You know, one of the, the proudest moments, I think, for me of the last couple of years was having NHS England come into the uh, the REC's call for all of our uh, health and social care providers and say, look, we couldn't have got through this without you. And that's an important acknowledgement at a time when in the past agency spend has been misunderstood, uh, systems have been put in place that are very driven by procurement rather than care quality. To, get, to have an acknowledgement that the sector itself, whether in acute health care or whether in social care was making a contribution and making a difference was really important. You know, we did a lot of work with uh, agencies or in social care to help them uh, make absolutely minimise movement of staff between uh, care homes. And we had to do a lot of work as well to make sure that agency staff were properly protected because very much early on in the pandemic, there, were, there was a period where substantive staff were having access to certain elements of support that agency staff, maybe because they, they weren't 
viewed as on our team weren't getting what they could and we got through that as well so that partnership that we built during the pandemic has been really important to keeping the nhs on the road and i think it's really important as hopefully the pandemic fades a bit into the rearview mirror and we start to deal with the backlog that we keep that partnership as you say the acknowledgement of the contribution is a perhaps a watershed but touching upon that um, you will know the research indicates that uh, clinicians in particular that choose to work through agencies very much uh, to emphasize that word choose to do so as a career choice as part of a wider uh, step change in the way the labor market and contingent workforce operates however and you've alluded to it um, there's been many policy pronouncements over the years and even quite recently which uh, de facto vilify uh, agencies um, sometimes bordering on the vituperative and particularly around pay rates we see this in the press can we unpack that because of the idea that there are exorbitant pay rates all of which goes into agencies pockets uh, we need to put that into context so the first and most important thing that people need to understand when they think about agency spend in inverted commas in the nhs is most of that agency spend is putting food on the table for a nurse or a doctor, it's paying the mortgage, it's, take, it's paying for taking the kids out, it's pay, it's NHS pay bill. Of course there is a margin, a gross profit margin that agencies take on top of the, the money that's actually paid across, but so much of that is eaten up by the kind of high quality compliance that agencies have to do, not both around identity checking, but also qualification, skills, credentialing. There is a significant amount of work that goes into making sure that whatever an agency supplies to a hospital trust is a care solution that is safe and high quality, as well as meeting any kind of pricing requirement. So there's a lot in that that agencies do. Of course, they are private sector organisations, they do make a profit, but actually by comparison with other private sector sectors, the margin is quite thin. Um, that's probably appropriate. We're delivering for the, uh, for, for the taxpayer and for the patient. But when we look at uh, that total spend, it's really important to remember that a tiny proportion of it is agency profit. Now, the other thing that we get a lot of is you know, £200 an hour, £300 an hour agency shifts. You have to put yourself into the shoes of a nurse on a Sunday afternoon in uh, South London who receives a phone call from an agency they work with that says, can you start a night shift in a hospital in Southampton at seven o'clock tonight? And ask yourself the question, would you do that for the same rate of pay as a substantive nurse with an ongoing employment contract? No, there's clearly, and there should be a premium for that kind of work, and there is. The challenge that we have is that we have a set of frameworks for NHS agency staffing that were designed in 2016. And then we'll go on and talk later, I'm sure, about how the labour market we had in 2016 and 2015 is not the labour market we have now. But they were designed primarily to manage the hourly care cost of agency. Setting some rules around agency pricing actually is a perfectly reasonable thing for a client to want to, want to do. We ended up in a situation where those uh, rates on frameworks are now so low in this situation that many uh, shifts are just being turned down. So you see more and more of what we call break glass happening on the frameworks where the rates where, where the rates go higher and even more of the kind of off framework last minute supply because of course when a medical director of a trust is faced with shut the ward 
or pay a premium, they will pay a premium. The goal for us, and it's why we'll come back to a partnership discussion about how we do this, the goal for us is to get the frameworks or get whatever structure uh, um, NHS England puts into place into a position uh, where most supply goes through that route because it's sustainable for the medical staff themselves. The problem we have at the moment is it's not sustainable for the medical staff themselves. That's why we're getting more break glass. And it's ultimately why we're getting more high cost late shifts, which are not in the interest of the industry. They're not in the interest of patient care. They're not in the interest of the taxpayer. And actually, they're not in the interest of medical staff either who who will want a little more predictability of their hours. As you've said yourself, that's why many... Uh, staff come to agency it's not about the money it's about being able to tailor working for the nhs which they s completely believe in are very driven by with being able to look after the kids to flesh out that discussion um, around frameworks they've been around for a long time uh, there was a step change of course in 2016 um, the labor market is very different to your um, uh, manifesto for growth says the the, the the general labor market the jobs market is at a critical stage now, the NHS is under an imperative, a statutory imperative with the new ICSs to uh, drive efficiency. Procurement is part of that. The professionalisation of procurement is a welcome and important use of the taxpayer's money. But can we expand upon that? What can be done? Because with so many break glass uh, instances, are the frameworks now fit for purpose? What could indeed should be done? So I don't think the current frameworks are fit for purpose because I think they're designed for a different era. In many ways, they may work very well have done the work that they were designed for back in 2016. There is more that we can do. And I think fundamentally it's about understanding that a, a, a purely price-based uh, framework is effective when what you are buying is goods, where you have a standard product, a paperclip. Nurses are not paperclips. I, I know you like a bit of history, so you'll get a bit of history from me. Now, Declaration of Philadelphia in 1944, just before the uh, invasion of Europe in World War II, all the Labour ministers from around the Allied world got together and said, these are the standards that we will have for the workplace after the war. And one of the articles was, Labour is not a commodity. You don't buy it like a commodity. It's a transaction between an individual and an employer. When you understand it that way, you begin to say, well, actually, we do want price control in, the, in a market like this, but the price control we want is about value. And it comes back to my point of earlier, which is, do you really want to set the price control at such a level that people will not take it and you need then to increase uh, emergency rates and pay more? Our view is right now the NHS is wasting pounds chasing pennies and a proper partnership would help the agency sector to help the NHS and social care to save pounds by getting the pennies right. Well, perhaps um, uh, the new health secretary may extend the alphabet metaphor she's used to include the frameworks uh, in what uh, she decides to look at. Um, I'm just going to change tack now and look at some of the key work that the REC have done within health and social care. And we could, there's many things, but there's a couple of things I want to focus on. Um, one of them is the advocacy that uh, you did to ensure that there was a digital right to work checks. Can you explain that and, and the victory in terms of it being continued, how important that was for the NHS and is still for the NHS? So uh, 
I think we'll talk a little bit about it, but I don't want to over-celebrate where we are on digital right-to-work because I think we haven't reached the destination station uh, yet. Critically, explaining to other government departments the kind of barriers that they put in the way to the efficient operation of the labour market is a core part of the, the REC's job. And I think if you're really interested in supply-side reforms rather than just uh, some tax cuts dressed up as supply-side reforms, you should start to ask some questions about what are the things that, for instance, the Home Office put in the way of businesses that might reasonably be done in another way. We're just starting some work on that. So digital right-to-work checks and the emergency system that we managed to get introduced at the beginning of the pandemic, clearly we had the wind at our back because there was force majeure in play, but in a, in a lockdown, you don't want to have, be asking consultants to drive around the country to check documents from people who are then going on to, into critical uh, medical situations where I think we did make a real difference was making sure that lasted long enough to get us back to something more like normality and we got a commitment from government to a new digital system which of course was introduced at the beginning of October 2022. I think that that is a material step forward from where we were before the pandemic I think it's a long way from the finish line. So if we look at the IDVT system, the system that now exists, uh, largely the biggest barrier is the rules the Home Office sets. We must be able to do this digitally more effectively than the current system. So there's a running joke in, in, in membership sector bodies that you know it's always much achieved, much more still to do. But on this, I think there's a real sense that we've made a small step on a permanent digital system but lots more still to do. And I think healthcare is a classic example of a sector that would benefit hugely from it, not just in terms of efficiency, but in terms of patient safety. So if you look at something like blockchain-enabled skills credentialing, we would love to work with the, the Department of Health on that. We think that there are other sectors that are using this technology effectively already. We need to be opening those conversations with uh, with DH. And again, it comes back to if you're having an argument about, uh, about agency pricing, which ignores the reality of the NHS, you're not creating the space for partnership that allows us to do things like effective skills credentialing online, allows us to get medical staff into settings quicker, but also know that the people uh, that we're putting into those settings have the skills that they need to be proficient and effective. Well, a long way to go, but perhaps uh, digitally speaking, we've uh, crossed the Rubicon at least in this regard. Um, I wanted to touch upon one other, one other topic. Um, it's a huge topic, but it, it's a very important one. Uh, the nature of work and the labour force has changed. People are working in a contingent fashion. They're working in a variety of jobs, portfolio careers. Your manifesto uh, for growth calls on the government to ensure that employment law reflects the reality of the labour market. Um, one of the pieces of legislation that came in five years ago was the IR35 of payroll, the public sector. There's a lot of advocacy that you did. Now, um, about 24, 36 hours ago, I was about to say, well, it looks like uh, you've had a, a victory because that was about to be repealed uh, by the previous chancellor. But it looks like the new chancellor, uh, Mr. Hunt, is, is going to keep that legislation in place. How important is it to the working of the labour market, and in particular to the health and social care system, that we have a system that reflects the reality on the ground? So I think your question is based on the right premise. The system needs to reflect the reality on the ground. The truth is, when we looked at uh, the repeal and then unrepeal of uh, IR35, 
I think the dis- the original decision was something that, on balance, REC members marginally welcomed, and the rollback is something that, on balance, REC members are marginally disappointed by. But actually, every one of them would say to me, and it's certainly my view, that getting rid of the twenty. Uh, 17 and 21 changes didn't solve the problems that we have in this space and keeping them doesn't solve them either. In truth, lots of this is about enforcement and structures and standards for people who don't work like civil servants work. Um, There is an opportunity, I think, over the next year or two to have a discussion about, about this with both parties in the House of Commons. We have to effectively looking at the polls right now be prepared to work with whoever is in power after the next general election and I think what we've seen over the the summer particularly with the work we did with Labour on uh, regulation about agency workers and strikes is we've seen a recognition from the Labour Party of the value of the sector that maybe we haven't seen before. We're talking to them now about how you make rules that genuinely work for people who work in diverse ways, a lot of it will come down to better use of data by government, better enforcement, because the truth of the matter is, if you look at IR35, I don't think people who drive trucks for major retailers where the truck is owned by a major retailer and where the major retailer tells them where to go should be outside IR35. And and the repeal... Uh, the most recent uh, U-turn kind of creates that risk again. We need a system. And this is where um, I think I agree with colleagues across the sector groups in the business community. If you want to do supply-side reform of our economy, it's tough and hard and difficult and detailed. It's not just reducing a few tax rates. No, absolutely. As a former employment lawyer myself, uh, any tackling of uh, employment status questions are something I uh, where the angels fear to tread as far as I'm concerned. Um, last question, really, looking at the bigger picture, because the health and social care uh, labour market, there are shortages, there are vacancies, uh, the nature of work has changed, but it, it can't be seen in a vacuum, it has to be seen in the broader trends within the labour market. Uh, the REC produced uh, a strategy document, uh, overcoming shortages, creating a sustainable labour market during the summer. Um, I wonder if you can speak about that, because the uh, providers and stakeholders within health and social care, certainly the NHS, are beating the drum for a NHS workforce strategy. Uh, I think you're really calling for something much larger than that, a national workforce strategy that encompasses a couple of key pillars, I think skills and immigration, that can facilitate a true change in the way that we're working. I think that is a really nice way of bringing it together, uh, Sahel, because for me, um, there is no national workforce strategy without an NHS and social care workforce strategy and vice versa. There are a handful of local authorities in the United Kingdom where the NHS isn't the biggest employer. In almost every local area, the NHS is the biggest employer and therefore the tightness that we see in the in the health uh, labour market is driven by the tightness that we see elsewhere and actually particularly in the social care uh, labour market. In health, in many ways, what you have is a skills crisis um, because it takes a long time to bring people up to the skills standards required of the the sector in social care in many ways you have a labor market crisis Uh, it it is just true to say that in social care the funding pressure 
on the sector has been such that many social care workers deeply believe in the work they do can go and do a job which uh, may in many senses be easier across the road at a major supermarket and earn more now. And that that is a funding challenge that we're going to have to lean into as a nation. So all of this requires, I think, government to think about how are we supporting the development of the right skills and the right volume of a labour force to make a difference. Uh, on the skills side, that is about you know, numbers through uh, medical qualification, but it's also about tackling Britain's very high level of economic inactivity. It's also about what level of immigration do we need to maintain the, the size of the labour force. But immigration is not the solution that once it was, because, of course, this is what every nation in Western Europe wants uh, right now. So there's a real sense of having to think differently about the design of jobs. And as we do that, that's where the weight really comes on to employers. And I think actually two-thirds of the recommendations in our report are not for government, they're for employers. And they're for, about how employers think about how they bring labour and skills online. So what is their commitment to training? Who are they working with to help them develop a long-term answers to their training work? And how are they redesigning the work that takes place in their businesses to use different skills, potentially high, higher level, more... Uh, strongly remunerated skills, but perhaps from fewer people. And there are lots of examples across the labour market already of companies doing that. And I think that discussion about how do we redesign the productive model of the NHS, not the NHS, carefree at the point of need, delivered in the public sector, but how we redesign the productive model of the NHS to be a better employer, a more flexible employer, deliver great care, within the traditional framework of free at the point of need. That feels to me like a national challenge which starts with workforce. It doesn't finish with workforce. And right now, if you mentioned earlier the new Secretary of State for Health's uh, ABCD, I am really disappointed by the lack of a focus on workforce in that. I think workforce, I would write workforce across the top of the whole thing. I can't think of a better way to uh, end our conversation than that uh, clarion call and a place, I think, for reimagining the role of agencies within that workforce. Uh, Neil Carberry, as always, thank you for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, sir. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want more information about how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Goodbye and thank you very much.